It's Preachers on Preaching, frank conversations between two preachers brought to you by the Christian Century Magazine. And now, your host, Matt Fitzgerald. This week I speak with Doug Padgett. Doug is the founding pastor of Solomon's Porch up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Solomon's Porch, as you may know, is one of the founding churches of the emergent church movement, although Doug doesn't like to call it a movement, but it's one of the first churches that was identified in that emergent post-evangelical way. In our conversation, Doug and I talk about the movement that both he and his congregation have undergone in those years, moving from a sort of post-evangelicalism into a wide, open, inclusive type of spirituality. Solomon's Porch does not have pews. They have couches that look remarkably comfortable when you see pictures and video of their church. It's a very unique church. Doug has a fresh and interesting approach on preaching and on church leadership in general. I know that you'll enjoy this conversation. Speaking of fresh and interesting, support for this week's episode of Preachers on Preaching comes from the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. They're now offering an online Doctor of Ministry degree for experienced ministers who want to strengthen the connection between theology and practice. You can study with Candler's renowned faculty in one of two tracks, either biblical interpretation and proclamation, or church leadership and community witness. Scholarships are available and details can be found at candler.emory.edu forward slash preaching. For now, here's my conversation with Doug Padgett. So I thought we could start, Doug, if you could just tell me about Solomon's Porch, which is not, I think, the your, the typical church. Could you let us know about how that's... Be, I know I, I looked at you guys online and you sit on you sit in fantastic looking couches during yeah, worship. Yeah, so the church is 16 years old and for that entire time, our way of meeting has tried to match the kind of community that we want to be and the way we want to live in the world which is face-to-face and as typical and normal as possible. So the reason we meet on couches and we sit on couches and and other household kind of furniture, you know, tables and typical household chairs and all of that, um, is trying to match the rhythm and feel of the rest of our lives so that what we do in church is not playing by a different set of rules than the way we think about or engage with each other in the other environments of our lives. So a living room or a coffee shop. Yeah, that that kind of, you know, there's just a different experience you have with someone when you sit on a couch next to somebody versus when you sit in a more formalized setting. Do you right? take pains to demarcate sacred space in other ways? Yeah, we don't do, um, like, we think that a space is made sacred by the experience that people have in it, not by the nature of the space. Um, so it becomes, uh, like, the, the sacredness of anything is an ex- is a relational experience. Um, I mean, that's the way I think about it. You know, the funny thing about being in a community like ours where we meet in a collective and kind of have this uh, preaching style that involves the voices of as many people who want to participate in that um, is that no one gets to speak for the whole for the whole place. Even though I, you know, I tend to be invited to do that more often than other people are. You know, like so, how do you at Solomon's Porch do this? Um, but I, I would say that that for many of us, uh, the notion of of a relational interplay is the most important part of our spirituality. 
be that with um, our own, you know, the interplay of our own spiritual experience with uh, God or with uh, creation or with one another or with um, an ancient text or with a spiritual practice. We try to recognize that there's a there's a, an experiential dynamic happening there, and it's in that interchange in that in that uh, exchange that happens between us and another or a place or an idea that that's where something that we would call sacred would happen so you said you've said that solomon's porch existed in your brain for a year or so before it it began that you were hoping and, and dreaming for a community like this how'd you pull it off where did it come from um you know the history of solomon's porch is kind of interesting in the sense that it was 16 or 17 years ago when it had its inception first, as you say, in my brain and then, um, in the experience and shared life of, of other people. And over those years, uh, I've realized that my memory of it can be a little, um, shaded and a little padded. Um, so I think this is still accurate as to how it came about, but I often suspect myself for my, uh, um, my, um, memory that's maybe been embellished and, and missed out on some pieces. But I was, I initiated the idea that we would do something called Solomon's Porch and invited mostly friends and some professional acquaintances to be part of the process with us. Uh, we had some funding from a number of church planting organizations that put their money together to help us sort of get over the first um 18 months to two and a half years of uh, what it takes to make something happen if you're going to have people put full-time effort and work into into starting a church. Um, so we did that and and invited friends and, and acquaintances to come be part of this project. And it was really hard at the start because we were describing something more about the way we wanted to be in the world, the way we wanted to be with each other, than what the outcomes were going to be. I, I had... My experience inside of kind and generous and, and healthy evangelical churches that were very committed to outcomes and to results. So a quantifiable, measured success. Right. Yeah. Well, you would do things because you wanted something to happen. <laughs> you didn't do things for the sake of doing things that, that you know— What's sort of common in a lot of parlance, you know, the, the journey wasn't the point. The destination was the point. Um, and that sort of filtered into a lot of the thinking about how a church would be organized and how all the actions of the church, especially the things that the, the pastor type people would do, it always had some outcome to it. It wasn't. Um, it well, was, in the world of, of new church starts, it seems to me from what I've seen, almost regardless of the theological background of the originating body or the funding bodies, it's pretty, I mean, it looks like market-driven, we'll seed you with X and you're going to return Y. I mean, that, that can get watered down, but I don't think that's unique to evangelicalism, the main line in our attempts to start churches. We're, it seems to me, anyhow, we're more concerned with outcome. You know, How many years is it going to be until you're going to be self-sufficient? At what point are you going to have 200 people in there on a Sunday morning? Well, I couldn't agree more. I work with a lot of denominationally background church planners, and the pressure is extreme on people to uh, make this sustainable and to contribute back into the whole, right, to be 
um, to save the denomination uh, or to um, be a, uh, a a moment of bright light in an otherwise dimming um, situation. So, so what did you when you thought of Solomon's Porch when you started when you made this pitch? What need were you meeting that? wasn't there why not affiliate yourself with a pre-existing congregation um yeah we were totally open to affiliating with pre-existing congregations we just wanted to do that with as many as possible our initial dream was that every time someone came to solomon's porch that whatever background they came from that we would consider ourselves consider ourselves to be part of that collective community with them so if you came as a Lutheran or a Presbyterian or a UCC or a Catholic, that we would say we are, you know, UCC and Presbyterian or Catholic or Methodist or whatever the people are, because we think that our community is made up of our people, not of our commitments, that we're a people group, not a organization with um, its own existence in the world, exclusive of the people who are part of it. Well, as it turns out, most other organizations and denominations didn't didn't see participation in their denomination to be that way. So we'll often refer to ourselves as sort of being a multi-denominational um, community of people, even though we're not officially part of those denominations. Denomination, and so we even tried to be part of one in particular, and our our particular structure of uh, flat, non-hierarchical leadership our commitment to um, considering everyone a part of the same community without distinction between clergy and and non-clergy being some as as something that would carry power in our community and uh, our commitment to including all people regardless of their expression of faith or their expression of their um, passions and love um, made it impossible for us to be Welcome to that particular community. Do you do you identify yourselves as a as a part of the emergent church movement? Is that something that you claim? Yeah, I mean, we we do partly because I I personally help to you know be a part of that whole movement. What is right? that? This I is a this is a basic question. But what that. does that mean? What? How do you define emergent church? Um. I don't think with any kind of a, of a dis, I don't I don't define emerging church categories with any sort of a distinction from others. A lot of us tend to use the language about the church that's emerging from whatever context it finds itself in, and I tend to think about people who are trying to take the culture that we live in now just as seriously as they take the other parts of their faith, just as seriously as they take the global expression as the historic expression and as the future expression, they take the place and time we're living now. Anyone doing that and organizing their community and their theology and their practice um, in this space and time as legitimately as possible. Um, I think they're doing the kind of work that I would say is part of the emerging church um, broad category. I don't really see it as a distinction from being a part of some other expression. Like it's not different than being Methodist or Lutheran. Or but do you feel that it's a movement of the church in general toward greater integration in people, in individuals' lives, but also greater integration into the culture? Is that a part of what I hear you saying? Yeah, I think some, I think for a lot of us, that's, that's the case. I think for some, that's not, 
That's not the particular play out of how their cultural expression of what Christianity looks like wouldn't require those things. It wouldn't require more connection to or integration with, with culture uh, as a whole, or it wouldn't require uh, it being more integrated between body, mind, and spirit, and passion. Um, we do that uh, for, for sure, but it's even that's not really a requirement. Like the, the emerging church categories have always been a self-defining. You know, you can opt in and mm-hmm. say you're part of it. I, I don't think it works very well as something that someone else can tell you you're a part of it, or worse, that someone else can tell you you're not a part of it. Right. So it's sort of naming a movement or a a move rather than a club or a. Yeah, Some sort it's, of, yeah, it's it's almost naming a, a, a an expression or an ethos as um, as much as it is even uh, a movement. Um, I mean, I, I think movements are really important, but they tend to be really big. Like, I think the movement that's happening in Christianity in North America is really big, and one of the expressions of these movements is this kind of emerging church thing that's happening out of the denominational and progressive evangelical spaces. Um, that's a little different than the way that it's happening out of Catholic churches and the way it's happening out of <clears throat> different ethnic expressions of churches. They're all a little different, um, but they're all part of this large movement of um, organizing around around peoples. And um, so, you know, I started an organization called Emergent Village, which tried to be this relational connection of people who were in this shared space. So we never thought, I never thought, we could speak for an entire movement. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty grandiose if someone thinks they can pull that off. Were you a church professional before Solomon's Porch began? I was, yeah. I worked, I worked at a large evangelical megachurch um, from the time I was in college through seminary. The same church? Uh, I was at the same place, yeah. A church called Wooddale Church, um, which is in the suburbs of Minneapolis here. And uh, I did youth and college work there. So I was a professional and did seminary and, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. And frankly, I had to metabolize, but then unlearn an awful lot of my experience through seminary. And um, I had to, as Ken Wilbur would put it, I had to transcend and include uh, my background in the large megachurch expression. Did you grow up in a church like that? I didn't. I didn't grow up at all religiously. Um, I didn't go to church ever, um, not once as a, as a child. I had no religious involvement or experience or background, um, which really helped me to be a bit, to feel a bit of a freedom to pioneer and to do things differently and to start over, whether that's preaching or church organization or church leadership, because I never felt like I was insulting my family by making a change and um, you know people's faith and their family and their faith and their tradition they're so bound um, in, in their expressions you know it's you can't help it like my children grow up with that now right so like if they don't they don't do Christianity they're kind of walking away from the family expression I didn't have that burden uh, I was able to do whatever I wanted in Christianity without that extra burden of feeling like uh, I've uh, unraveled something that you know the Paget clan had been up to for all those years. In fact, I was trying to solve the problem about maybe why were we not part of all of this? Yeah, so I was wondering if there's if you suffered the sort of inverse of that. Did your if you were raised in a secular home when you 
became a Christian, became began, began taking church seriously, were your parents or your broader family surprised, disapproving? Yeah, I think I think surprised and a little concerned, not really disapproving. Like we were so non-churched, church wasn't even a thing that we were worried about. Right? Like we weren't anti-church. <laughs> we were just like, I don't know, we, that's a thing we don't do, you know. You're post church. And yeah. we didn't go to church. Did you know? grow up in Minnesota? <laughs> yeah, I grew up in Minnesota. And in the Twin Cities? In a yeah, in a first ring suburb of Minneapolis called Golden Valley. Oh yeah. So um, everybody around me like went to church and stuff, but you know, we I also grew up in an apartment complex, uh as a sort of lower middle class, lower class um family system structure. And uh you know, nobody really goes after uh, lower class people that haven't be part of their churches. That's no, that's that's never a, that's never an outreach. In fact, I have a, a friend who does some church consulting, and he says there's no expression of Christianity in the 20th and 21st century that takes seriously connecting with people who do their laundry in public laundromats. Isn't that amazing? And it's then the interesting way to think about how, in my experience now. Then the mainline liberal um, this hand wringing over Donald Trump. Looking at the people who are attracted to him, saying, "Oh, you know, they think they're Christian, but they don't know what that means." Meanwhile, right, as you're saying, we haven't bothered to try to share what our understanding of Christianity is. Right, right, and um, you, know, you 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 write off a whole uh, sort of poor white socio class group of people, and then get surprised when they organize in a different way and come back with an with a, an expression of a view of America that doesn't fit a you know a, a liberal Jesus-y way, well, yeah, it's it's not self-evident to everybody that, you know, one should love their neighbor and their enemy equally. <laughs> like that's, you you got to, but might be nice to share that with people and not just assume that that's um, built into everyone's uh, experience of life. Um, so there's some real lessons to learn in that whole, in this, this whole rise of the kind of authoritarian fear-based, um, um, lower white middle class culture in North America. It's, yeah. It's worth talking about. It's interesting to think of it that way. Like I've read and thought before that the, the doctrinal claims of Christianity are way too idiosyncratic for anybody to just sort of like come up with on their own. But what you're saying is the values of Christianity are also at odds with whatever anyone's going to glean from the wider culture or even necessarily from within their own conscience or their own hearts. Have you guys tried to reach out to that population? Do you evangelize at Solomon's Porch? Yeah, we, we do. You know, we think that the answer to, to uh, or the, the compelling component of Christianity to people or the answer to people's questions or the, the, the answer to what are you guys about is best answered in community that people join and participate in. So we work really hard to try to find ways to engage communally and collectively in all the communities that people find themselves a part of. And one of the hard things, you know, when you're, when you don't have a a belief system of distinction and segregation, like we don't tend to around Salma's porch, it gets a little harder to identify the outsider and reach and figure out how you're going to reach them to make them an insider. And it's because you don't think of them as an outsider. So it's a different kind of hospitality and it's a different kind of posturing 
if you're not trying to solve the problem that you have what they need, but that you have a gift, they have a gift. And if we exchange gifts, you know, sort of metaphorically and literally, if we exchange gifts, we would all be better people. That's, um, <clears throat> that, that plays out in some really different ways uh, for, for us in our community. So I think we're doing an awful lot of evangelism, not making any distinction between Christians self-professing Christians and people who don't necessarily profess as Christians. I bet that's hard. I mean, if the boundaries are, are intentionally low and porous, um, yeah, how do, you, uh, how do you report back, right? Oh, we've, we've saved 300 souls this year or however, whatever language that takes or gained right. 300 members. Um, and I we don't go- even believe that like, participation in all things of our community is necessarily best for everyone. So you end up having to count, um, you end up having to take stock in a lot of different ways than only counting one set of uh, figures, like one way of participating in a community. So like in our building, we run a wellness center with natural health practitioners and um, talk therapists and acupuncturists and stuff. And we run a yoga studio and we run a little work lounge and we use our building for lots of connection points for people in uh, recovery groups. And we think that all of that counts and is a part of it, even though not everyone is a part of the particular Christian expressions that we're doing of what we do in our Sunday gatherings with the, so we want to make sure that all of those pieces are, are, uh, equally part of this communal expression of what we're doing in the world and not believing that, hey, if you came to the Sunday experience, that would be more enriching to your life than if you went to a Tuesday night acupuncture session. And know? this is out of a, if I understand what I've read of yours correctly, it's no accident that you're modeling your church organization that way. It's out of a particular set of theological convictions around... Right not seeing God as distinct from creation or existence, right? But rather, right. you Once, say in your latest book that, that um, God is existence. Right. Yeah, this, this kind of um, notion that the Apostle Paul taps into in that famous sermon that's recorded in Acts 17, you know, and when he's in at Mars Hill and he looks around at all the idols and says, I don't think this is the way this that humanity experiences God. God doesn't live in heaven to be served by human hands or to be begged as if God needs something, but rather in God, we live and move and have our being. And uh, I like the way other people have talked about that. And I write about that in my book flipped where they say, God doesn't just exist. God is the existence that all things are in once you're there, then you, re- I think it's actually a more compelling Christian story than about how somebody lives and how a community lives alive and uh, in God and in harmony with one another and with creation and with um, themselves. That that's a really compelling Christian narrative. To get Once to that point, some gap or something. In your own theological um, journey, I would imagine that stepping out of Wooddale Church, you weren't, you didn't have that 
um, I mean, I don't want to call it panentheism if you're not calling it that, but that fully integrated God as existence theological understanding. I imagine you probably, that wasn't where you were 17 years ago necessarily, or maybe it wasn't articulated as much as you're articulating it now. Um, as, as a leader in your congregation, as you've made that move, has that been a move that you've called upon the folks that you're with to, to follow? Has that been an organic process? What did that look like to change your understanding of God, to flip your own understanding yeah. of God as the leader of a congregation? Yeah, it's been, a, I mean, I've been at this with this same community of people for 16 years. Some of these, some of the people who are part of Solomon's Porch, I've known, you know, I was like their youth pastor when they were 15 years old, you know, and it's been a long time in the incoming. Uh, and they've had to watch me change my views to um, re-articulate sometimes to let go of some things and totally jump into something new. Um, and they've had to, to sort of figure out if they want to be in a community where someone who plays the role that I play, which is an organizing in a, a Christian formation role and organizes Sundays and gives direction to what happens there and articulates in talking um, what I think about the, the world. They, they've had to come to grips with going on that journey and letting their views and my views not always correspond. And sometimes that's because I changed what I think. And, you know, you know like they think what I thought 12 years ago, and then I adapted, broadened, narrowed, whatever I did to think something different. That's not comfortable for everyone, you know. Um, there's an awful lot of people who want to be in a community where the person who plays the role that I play here uh, thinks the way they do, and you start moving that around on them, and man, it's it's not it's it's hard on people. Um, and then on the other hand, I've realized, and part of the reason I have approached preaching the way I do now is a collective communal activity of ongoing dialogue as opposed to a presentation from a one-way communication style is people don't care what I think kind of fundamentally, right? Like <laughs> I say things and they're just like, no, I don't, I don't think that. Um, I like you and I like some of the things you say, but about that, no. Um, and there's freedom in the congregation to have that, to feel that way, right? To have that sense of disagreement. Apparently an abundance of feeling of, of freedom to have that. Uh, there's times I'm, I'm just like, honestly, people, if you, if you stick with me right now, I think, I think, you know, I think I'm right in this one. And fortunately, you know, they're wiser than I am to realize maybe in six years, you're not going to think this about that. So why don't we hold that as a possibility? I have become so convinced that the best way to grow in our lives, including our faith, but any of our belief systems, whether it's your belief system in politics or the economy or your role in your family or your belief about yourself or your belief about the, the climate or your belief about God, any belief systems we have, the best way to form and to adapt and to change and to grow our belief is to be in relationship with someone who thinks differently than you do yeah. and to borrow their belief for a while or what we used to say in the parlance of evangelicalism, share your faith with them, give a little piece of yours to them so they can go with you for a while. That's how it happens, right? Um, 
for most of us, you realize what you now think you're like, you know, I know someone who thinks like that. And that's what brings you along in that in that journey. So uh, it's part of what I've realized my role as a pastor and preacher and you know teacher and all those different functions that I think we all play here in our community. Um, what what I think part of our role is, is to not hide our light under a bushel and to share how we view the world with one another. And there have been times where I know I have he- hesitated on completely saying what I think about things. Um, sometimes out of self-protection, for sure. And sometimes because I'm like, I'm just not sure this is going to be helpful for anyone for me to share where I am right now on this. Like I'm, I'm in a little bit of a, I'm in a place that I'm not sure I want to be where I am right now. Mm. And sometimes I've worried that I've been a little too hesitant on some of that. um, Held back too much. Well, your voice probably has an outsized impact at Solomon's porch. So I would wonder if, you know, that hesitancy is if you're not yourself certain yet, you know yeah. what I mean? As you're, as you're kind of unrolling your ideas, what yeah. does, um, what does it look like to preach this way? To, so you strip out the, this boundary between pulpit and pew. Um, and then you've also worked to integrate the voice of the preacher into the congregation in a non-hierarchical way. What does that look like on a, at a, in a worship service at Solomon's porch? So it can look a couple of ways. It, when we stay in the room together, uh, sometimes we, like in the last few weeks, we've done this and we, we'll do this on a rhythm of three or four weeks on and three or four weeks off. People have choices of different kinds of sermons they can go to, a discussion sermon, a creative, creating something sermon time, a contemplative meditative time, or a presentation. Are these running concurrently or are they? So people will break up into different parts of the building. And different people host those sermon experiences. And sometimes we stay together. And, and the same, there's a few, I don't know if they're, I'm not comfortable really calling them sort of principles or uh, something like this, but there are some practices that come into play. And that is the assumption that everyone has a contribution to make to this sermon. They may not choose to share it or they may not choose to share it all in the same way. But people have a contribution to make. So one of the things that I'll do if I'm leading a, a more of a of a guided sermon where we're all in a space together, so last Sunday or something, I will start out by asking people if they would share, and sometimes they'll share it out loud to everybody in the room, sometimes they'll share it to each other, sometimes they'll just share it with themselves, right? They'll just do a little cognitive work. What they already know or think about the topic that we're going to be talking about. So... This last week, the sermon was uh, Luke chapter 4. So I asked people to talk about what do you already think about this? What do you already know about it? What's familiar with you? Just the act of asking people to catalog what do you already know is a revolutionary act for most preachers, right? Um, Most people in our churches know something about the thing we're going to be talking about, Um, Most of us don't talk about so many fresh things. If you're around a church for a year or two or 10 or 30, you haven't had a shot at this before. I did this preaching seminar at a church um, on a style of preaching on a Saturday, and then we made a sermon together. 
um, on that Saturday afternoon, and then that became the sermon we did on that Sunday, which is kind of following this process. We do a psalmist porch using different uh, groups to help make a sermon together for the coming Sunday. And so we did this, and uh, the, the group had picked Acts chapter 2 to be the topic of the sermon. So I was leading the sermon as a stranger in this, in this church, um, you know, a guest preacher, and I started out by saying, after the reading, that is in the structure of their church, they would read the sort of passage, you know, in the scripture reading time. So I asked people to indicate by a raising of hands, how many of you heard this Acts chapter 2 passage we just read for the first time today? And there were some people that were there for a baptism that was going on of their neighbor. So they, like, raised their hand. You know, they'd never heard it before. And then I said, so how many of you heard this, like, remember hearing this uh, less than three years ago, some hands. How many less than five years ago? And then how many 10 years ago? How many 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50, 60, 70 years ago? This guy's hand is up. So I said to the, after all that, I said, well, I'd love to hear what the people who heard it for the first time today are thinking about, if you're willing to share, and what the guy who's 70 years or more. And people were thrilled to hear that. And they opened up? They opened up, they shared a couple of things. And then the, the man who had this hand up more than 70 years, at the end of the service, he said, you know, when the sermon started, didn't think I wanted to listen to Yeah, I just can't listen to a man preach that doesn't have his shirt tucked in. Okay, it's a great line. Uh, and and he said, but then he asked how long, we, how long ago we'd heard this story and what I thought of it. And he said, you know what? Going to church my entire life, this guy's in his early 80s, Going to church my entire life, no preachers ever asked me what I thought about the passage before he preached the sermon. And it just struck me like, what were you doing coming back for 70 or 80 years? I mean, the, the notion that he doesn't have anything to share. and um, So preaching moves from being this didactic exercise into a communal one. How, what is that? I'm sure some of our listeners will be intrigued by this and will want to try it. What do you do uh, in order to get there? What are the steps? Well, so, so there's lots of ways to do it. I, because of my temperament and personality and style, I'm really good on my feet. I'm really good at creating a thought instantaneously. So I have a very high level of comfort and confidence with you can say something and that won't throw me off. It will fuel the thing I want to say anyway. So there's an improvisatory... Thing right. going so on. it's like jazz, improv, all that stuff. I know the story well enough. I know where I'm going that if you say something, it's going to become part of that and not interrupt it. There's a whole lot of other people that are really different than that. They, they have a higher level of empathy. They hear someone start to talk. Their mind goes to what that person's saying and thinking and they lose track of their own thoughts. I mean, that's not my problem, which my problem is a lack of empathy, not a lack of you know staying on track of what I was going to say anyway. It never leaves me, right? So other people will do it differently. So like we will do an open room where people are comfortable saying and talking out loud. And that works for some people. Some people just aren't going to talk in front of 50 or 100 or 200 people. They're just not going to do it. Um, so we find other ways for them to share. But I know other churches that, that ask people, what do you think about the passage? Not in the open way that I did or we do typically here at Solomon's Porch, the way I just described. But they will ask for people of their community to help make the sermon with them or to respond to last week's sermon. So I know people that will pick like uh, a high school age person, 
a, a long-term member of the church, uh, somebody that's um, gone through some real change in their life recently, and somebody who's really new around there. Right? They'll pick four people, and they'll work on the sermon together with them. And then they'll ask them to give responses to last week's sermon or to respond at the end of this sermon. So they're prepared to do it. They know what the topic's going to be. They've been doing some thinking about it. And they'll come up and they'll say, here's what I think. And this so is happening the, publicly as a part of the worship service, not in some kind of feedback session. That's right, as, at, the, at the end of the sermon. So they'll say like, so we're going to talk about Luke chapter 4. Here's my dealio. This is what I got. And they lay out their real well-crafted sermon. And then they're followed up by two of those four people on this given week who say, well, here's what I was thinking about this when – you know, the pastor was talking, or here's what I thought about this all week long, and it was different. There's, I love it. There's, um, so what you're talking about is this way of pulling people's voices out, right? Yeah. And I would imagine that even in that more formal structure that you've taught, if you've got four people who have been doing this all week long, who are a diverse representative representation of a community, that will then spark, like, if the teenage kids see a high school student respond, they're going to resonate with what she thinks. Right. Maybe more readily than they do with what you have to say, and it's going to start their own internal, at least interior, dialogue. Right? Yeah, I've found that as a preacher, I very often have, to, if I'm going to use dialogue and conversation and input, I have to hold back on the contributions I have to make to create space for other people to say it. And this can become borderline manipulative, right? So I'll often go into a sermon if I know there's going to be some dialogue, knowing the two or three or four things that I think sort of matter. And if other people can say those, that's way better than me saying them. And then if they don't, then I fill in. So there's an awful lot of times where you have to wait so that other people can make that contribution or make that sh have that sharing moment. Uh, without you doing it. And Do you find yourself surprised ever? Like not, not only like gratified when somebody says what you think needs to be said, but do you ever find yourself in the moment having your mind changed or taken aback by what somebody says? Oh, this is not an over overstatement. Almost every time, almost every week. I mean, last week it, it just happened again. Josh said this thing at the end of this sermon that we read about the importance in Acts chapter or in uh, Luke chapter four of places and how Jesus makes this commentary about a prophet's never welcomed in their own hometown, and then all then the two illustrations he gives about Elijah and Elisha actually name the places, and even in the narrative of this of this uh, story. It names the place and Josh brings up the whole notion that the places where we do like it's people have so much, they may not have 30 minutes. They might not have seven minutes and a poem. They might not be able to do it every week, but man, people have so much more to contribute. And of course they do partly because, you know, uh, they're brilliant people. And we also live in such a highly educated society. Um, and people have had so many experiences, especially when it comes to a sermon. I mean, you've probably had this experience. If you've had to preach, you look out and you're like, there are four people in this room right now that know more about this passage than I do. You oh, know, yeah. Just trying to keep up with them. And we have this terrible habit as preachers of wanting to quote strangers and dead people for our authority, as opposed to quoting the person sitting over there or the person right behind you or the guy you had lunch with yesterday. And as it turns out, people want to believe that we live in an expert culture where they really do trust experts. 
but most of us biologically, fundamentally, deeply, we believe people that we know and trust. That's who we believe. Well, there's also something very beautiful if you stop and think that the guy that you had lunch with or the woman that you're sitting next to, if you truly believe that God is moving in that person's life, right? Their, Their testimony about that ought to be taken as seriously as Augustine's. The way I got to this, frankly, wasn't outcome based. It was I realized that as a pastor, there were certain things that I got to do that made Christianity more meaningful to me and my faith more alive for me. I got to think about these ideas. I had to communicate them out loud in front of other people. I had to take responsibility for the faith that I held. And then you think in most churches, pastors do that. And then their parishioners, their congregants don't do that. But we expect that they're going to get the same outcome by not doing the same practice. It's, it's just, it doesn't work. Like it's like saying, "Hey, watch me work out, and you'll develop the same fitness as me working out." Like if we think it's good for us to think about the passage of the Bible and to share it out loud with other people, and to take responsibility for it, and to have to articulate it, and to have to live in the tension between what we think and what it's the the the, the faith is saying to us. Yeah, that's that's what makes people's faith alive. Like it's oh, I love it. Madness that we would that we would think it's going to do anyone good to watch me go through the practice of that. It, it's that's I, brilliant. It makes me think too, Doug. That like the one place where I do that in my own ministry is encouraging people to eulogize their dead loved ones. Right? Like right. here's your opportunity. Sit down. Write. You know, you might be reluctant to do it, but really sit down and try to integrate your faith with your grief, with your appreciation for this person who's gone. And what I find myself saying to people is, it'll be good for you. It'll, it'll hasten your, your, your grieving process it'll, or maybe intensify it, but it's a good exercise. I, I think that's right. But how pathetic that the only time I'm calling yeah. on people to do that is in a funeral. Why not? What about on Easter? <laughs> what about like a week from Sunday? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, no, it's, it, it causes. Have you have you interacted much with like the sort of homiletical theory people in terms of? Because one of the things I think your method would be asking pastors to do is really do an immense amount of unlearning, right? So when I was taught how to preach in seminary, I was taught again how to focus and sharpen myself as a virtuoso, a potential one, not how to build a communal voice, right? No. Do you ever go to seminaries and teach this method? Is it something yeah. that's... And I, you know, I, and I wrote a preaching book on this. Um, so it's used in seminaries. And, um, you know, it's about 20% of the people that are like, oh, finally, somebody's saying that stuff. Good. <laughs> and about 80% that are like, hang on a minute. All the things I'm good at, you're suggesting I shouldn't try to make a living off those things. <laughs> Doug, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate the time that you've taken, and I think that um, the folks who are who are who are listening are who don't know your ideas already are really going to be enlightened. That's very nice of you. Thanks. Yeah. Thinking of me. Hit me up. Many thanks for listening to the Christian Centuries Preachers on Preaching podcast. This episode was edited by Neil Ellingson, with technical assistance from Kyle Hoker and Steve Thorngate.